Hello and welcome to episode 21 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gives us a reason to live and can also wreck our lives. I'm your host, James Toth. If you live in a big city or have spent a lot of time in one, you know that seeing famous people is not at all a rare occurrence. Uh, I grew up in New York, and regularly traveling to the East Village to buy records when I was a teenager, it was rare to not spot a famous musician or actor or actress in my travels. Of course, this depends on how loose your definition of famous is, but yeah, many a time I've been walking down St. Mark's Place and I would lock eyes on a passing stranger who looked familiar to me, and I'd think, I know this person. Did I go to college with them? Are they in a band I've shared a bill with? only for that thought to be followed by the sudden realization that it was just someone I saw on TV or in a movie, and a realization accompanied by the sinking feeling that I might have just been mistaken for gawking. If you are dead set on meeting some towering figure you respect or admire, the best way is in a professional setting. I know some people enjoy meet-and-greet type things. I'll confess I've been tempted to attend one of King Crimson's meet-and-greets, but the chances of you making an actual, meaningful connection with a person during one of these encounters is pretty slim. I once told a band I was playing with, when we were opening for a much bigger band that they were all fans of, that if anyone asked for an autograph, I would quit the band. Maybe that sounds harsh to you. But if you're sharing a stage, you're peers. As soon as you ask for an autograph or a photo, you're a fan. And now let me be perfectly clear. There is nothing wrong with being a fan. I'm probably more fan than I am anything else, and everything I do professionally or for fun, music criticism, songwriting, making records, everything, they're really just tributaries in that river of my fandom. If Glenn Danzig or Phil Lesh or Pharaoh Sanders walked in here right now, I would definitely freak out a little. Fandom is nothing to be ashamed of. But hierarchies have always sort of bugged me, and so being a musician makes these situations even more complicated and sometimes really difficult to navigate. If you do meet a person whose books, records, movies, or art you love, and do so through natural circumstances like being introduced by a mutual friend or in a professional setting, here's a great trick to not look like a pitiful, salivating dog waiting for some bland anecdote. And I've lived long enough now that I can share this little technique, and if somebody witnesses me doing it now and recognizing the tactic from the podcast, well, I don't really care. It's a useful trick. Okay, so if you meet someone you respect or admire, and you don't want to look dumb, here's a simple thing you can do. After a few minutes, you excuse yourself. That's it. You excuse yourself before this likely very busy person can make an excuse to excuse themselves first. Very simple, but it always works. If you meet, say, Robert Plant, and have always harbored fantasies about collaborating with him on your rock opera someday, I guarantee you it is more likely to happen if he meets you a second time, and he remembers that the first time you didn't creep him out. Okay, your rock opera with Robert Plant, that's not going to happen, but you get the idea. If Jimi Hendrix rises from the grave and starts making small talk with you, Excuse yourself after five minutes, no matter how tempted you are to do otherwise. Say, well, shit, Jimmy, it's been a pleasure talking to you, but I haven't eaten lunch yet today. I really gotta run. If you find yourself in the company of the ghost of Jimmy again later, he will remember that you aren't a psychic vampire. Now, there's actually a reason I used Robert Plant as an example a minute ago. 
A few years ago, Plant came into the record store where I worked in Richmond, Virginia. Unfortunately, I was not working that day. Now, Robert Plant is known to be a pretty big music fan who keeps up with new music and collects records. Um, I have friends at Grimey's in Nashville who've waited on him there, too. And so anyway, he decided on this day to pop into Steady Sounds in Richmond with his bodyguard in tow to buy a few records. My co-workers behaved themselves, and while they were their usual courteous and accommodating selves, they didn't make a big fuss. Afterward, when their friends found out, everyone was asking them the same things. Why didn't you get a photo? Why didn't you have him sign all of the Led Zeppelin records in the store? Did you get an autograph? Here's the thing. No, no, and no. You know why? Because if you don't do that, and Robert Plant knows that our store is a place where he can shop in peace and not have his privacy invaded, Robert Plant will come back to the store next time he's in town. Sort of a, if you love something, set it free kind of deal. Anyway, I can guarantee you that anything that you, a fan, would ever say to Robert Plant, he has heard a million times in a thousand different languages. Except maybe, thanks for stopping into Steady Sounds. You want a bag? Now, of course, some people who don't play music and don't own record stores or work in them, they aren't concerned with these hierarchies, and they just want the thrill of meeting someone they've seen on TV or listened to on a record, and they want a souvenir of that meeting via an autograph or a photo. Now, that's totally cool. I think that's a perfectly human response. For me, though, all I think about when someone scribbles on a record sleeve is, well, now it's no longer in near-mint condition. Yes, there's a place in record collector hell for such nerdiness, but I'm just being honest. There's actually a long-standing debate in baseball card communities about this very thing. Many collectors say that a player's autograph, even if it's on, say, a Babe Ruth rookie card, devalues the card. Some of those guys even refer to signatures as card graffiti. Now, you do see and occasionally meet famous people on tour. I've met my share, and most of these meetings weren't especially memorable, and anyway, any story in which I exchanged fewer than 25 words with some celebrity would just be pointless name-dropping, so I'm not going to tell any of those stories. But I will tell one, because it is one of the strangest encounters I've ever had with another human being, famous or otherwise. I will now tell you about the dark energy of Carrot Top. My band was on tour, on one of those long, endless drives between major cities. We were having one of those classic band arguments about where to stop to eat. You know, one of these excruciating conversations. This one's vegan. This one isn't vegan, but is tired of eating greasy garbage food. This one wouldn't eat a vegetable if you poured Bosco and bacon on it. That would have been me. This one really like a burrito. This one's really tired of burritos. This one would really like to stop at a place that serves beer. On and on like this. Excruciating. And so, with everyone growing increasingly hangry and irritable... We decided to stop at the very next place we saw off the interstate, no matter what it was. This is one of those classic compromises where literally no one is happy. So we see a sign for Denny's outside of Salt Lake City. I just spoke to my friend and former bandmate who was present for this to confirm some of the details of the following story, and she reminded me of another reason for the morning's tension. It was really hard to get coffee given the Mormon restrictions of the area. Now, normally, a band like ours, walking into such a diner in the middle of Utah, gets gawked at. The guys in Wolf Eyes had a great name for this scenario. When you walk into a restaurant in the middle of nowhere, and you, you can hear the people in the diner drop their spoons, and the feeling of them staring at you in your Sisters of Mercy t-shirt, like you just emerged from a UFO, it feels almost physical. They call it the Ice Grill. 
we got the ice grill a lot. Most bands do. Just like with waiters and waitresses and hotel desk clerks constantly asking if you're in a band, it's just something you get used to. So anyway, we were prepared. It was definitely ice grill country. So you go in, you try to not make eye contact with the locals, you scarf down your mediocre breakfast burrito, and you get on with your day. As we walked into the mostly empty, sad-looking place, someone in our band noticed a person with a big cloud of orange hair sitting at the breakfast bar with their back to us. They were flanked on each side by two big farmer-looking dudes in overalls and the kind of ball caps that advertise guns and tools. Hey, get a load of carrot top, someone in the band quipped. They whispered it, but not quietly enough, apparently, because suddenly, to our surprise, the man himself spun dramatically around in his stool to face us and issued forth a glare that stopped time. From behind me, I heard an audible gasp from the other members of my band. Now let me tell you something about being glared at by Carrot Top. It was one of the most frightening moments of my entire life. When this man looked at me, my blood ran ice cold. The famous prop comic looked like chaotic evil personified, like a Marvel villain. Not funny, not silly. Chaotic fucking evil. A thing you should know about Caratop in person is that the dude is extremely well-built and fit and muscular. He's not scrawny like you might imagine. He definitely works out, probably does CrossFit or something. On this day, he wore a sleeveless light blue t-shirt, which showed off his tremendous muscles. He looked about as out of place among the Utah Bubbas as we did, but for entirely different reasons. Caratop has eyeliner tattooed around the contours of his eyes. This gives Caratop's peepers a menacing aura, like they were orbs set inside two large cigarette burns. As he stared at us for what felt like minutes, he narrowed those eyes as if he was lightly squinting at something. You remember Malachi from Children of the Corn? Well, imagine a grown-up version of him crossed with a steroidal Pennywise the Clown. Caratop's menacing gaze conveyed many things, but mostly it said, Yes, it is I, Carrot Top, and I am now going to take this Denny's butter knife and use it to slowly butcher all of you for the thoughtless thing you just said. No one in my band spoke a word. He just sort of scowled at us, his mouth tight, daring us to utter another word. Then, dude stands up, sighs, and leaves. On foot. I mean, we watched him walk clear across the parking lot. Where was he going? There was nothing around for miles. Now, if I didn't have the four other people with whom I witnessed this event to corroborate this story, I could definitely be convinced that I dreamt it. Like, what the fuck was Carrot Top doing there? I've never figured this out. I googled him just now to see if maybe he was from that area, and maybe he was just visiting family, but nope. He's from Florida. Maybe he had a show nearby in Salt Lake, uh, but the leaving on foot thing? Oh my god, so fucking weird. I've never forgotten his murderous gaze. Still see it in my nightmares. Now, maybe this is just a thing Carrot Top does to deal with his fame. A way of handling being recognized and maybe ridiculed by wiseasses like us. Like, he purposely creeps gawkers out so that they come away from encounters with the famous prop comic with stories like mine. Now, if this is true, that Caratop vibes people out by glowering at them like some soul-devouring monster in a Japanese horror film, I am all for that. I'm all for it. If that's Caratop's style, and he could be that convincing, Caratop just might be the finest actor of my generation.
But just in case what we saw was the real Carrot Top, should you ever run into the man, heed my advice. Do not fuck with him. I got scowled at by another famous person once, also on tour. That one was just as surreal, but not anywhere near as scary. I'll tell you that story, too. It's a story I call The Raising of Chalet Six. In December of 2006, my band was invited to play the All Tomorrow's Party's Nightmare Before Christmas Festival outside of London, curated by Thurston Moore. The festival took place on the grounds of the Butlins Holiday Center in Minehead. It felt like a pretty major event. I was scheduled to perform alongside bands like Sonic Youth, Iggy and the Stooges, Dinosaur Jr., Mission of Burma, Gang of Four, Peter Brotzman and Han Benick, Melvins, and Flipper with guest bassist Chris Novoselic of Nirvana. There were also at least a dozen bands on the bill comprised of good friends and acquaintances of mine, as well as many former touring and recording partners, which, you know, made the whole weekend feel like a really cool high school reunion. Our set had us opening for the Melvins on the main stage as an acoustic duo, which was intimidating, but you know, it was fine. Anyway, so we play, we watch the Melvins, and as the evening's programming starts to wind down, the drinking and raging typical to all music festivals begins, as bands and various friends and fans stumble to the nearby chalets where the talent had been booked to stay for the weekend. I walked in the direction of the chalets as part of a large crowd that seemed to absorb new people with every few steps. Chalet 6, someone screamed. Chalet fucking six, someone repeated, confirming the rendezvous spot. Like a not-so-secret speakeasy password, the mysterious Chalet six was to be the site of the after-party. Now, these little cottages were small and only held like four or five people at the most. I was staying in a chalet a few down from Chalet six, where earlier, in true idiotic rock-dickhead fashion, I'd comically spilled a bag of expensive drugs on the carpet. I can't have anything nice. So over to Chalet 6. Members of several bands crowded into the tight, prefab cottage while others gathered outside. I won't name the specific bands involved in instigating the assault on the chalet, because first of all, they're friends of mine. Second of all, they might not even remember this incident. And third, if you look online at the festival lineup, you can probably narrow it down. Now, occasionally, non-touring people ask me if there are ever any of the Dionysian antics on tour you read about in rock lore, and I usually have to disappoint them by telling them the truth. Uh, someone driving a Rolls Royce into a swimming pool is not a thing I have ever witnessed. Nor have I ever seen a TV thrown from a hotel window or any of that. Touring is mostly trying to not get caught cramming too many people into a cheap motel room and a lot of waiting around and long hours of interstate driving. But tonight was different. It was bedlam. Furniture got smashed. There was nudity. Someone began whipping empty bottles of Budweiser at the chalet's low-hanging chandelier. Just bam, bam, bam. Now, I have no particular aversion to senseless destruction, and I was in college one of the premier on-campus apartment destroyers. But I also don't like tight spots. So I vacated the immediate vicinity of the cramped chalet to observe the scene from outside, with four or fifty others in various stages of debauched inebriation. Matt Valentine shuffled over to where I stood hanging with Gray of Hivemind. That porch is coming down, bro, he chuckled, motioning to where a comically large crowd had assembled on the small balcony outside the chalet, like circus clowns packed into a Volkswagen. Sure enough, a moment later, the porch buckled and then collapsed. 
sending a dozen revelers to the ground in a howling, sweaty pile. Just then, a very tall, bald man appeared from the door of an adjacent chalet, about three yards from where I stood. He was dressed in a bathrobe, and he looked a bit out of place. Witnessing the mayhem, he for whatever reason chose to lock his eyes on me, a mere bystander, and began to shake his head in a performative, exaggerated kind of disgust. I kind of made the shrugging, hey, what are you going to do, expression, but the man was not amused. He kept shaking his head disapprovingly, sneering, before slowly returning to his chalet and slamming the door angrily. Gray looked at me with astonishment. Dude, he said, the bass player from Nirvana just scolded you, dude. Thank you for listening. Reminder that you have a few more days to answer our most recent poll question, which is to name a musical triple threat. That would be a recording artist that can sing, play, and write with equal facility. So if you are forming the theoretical greatest band in the history of the world, you can make a good case for hiring this person to write the songs, sing the songs, and or play the songs. Here are a few things I've been listening to and enjoying. I'm pretty into this double album Quattro, that's with two T's, by an improvising French collective called Tons Mine Hertz. Fans of $75 Bill and Joshua Abrams Natural Information Society, and that should be all of you, will definitely dig these post-everything jams, which have a similarly hypnotic flavor, but these guys add this sort of unlikely hippie lotus eater vibe too, like a trod gras or maybe agitation free. Really great record. Speaking of Joshua Abrams, he just released an album on rogue art with his Cloud Script Quartet, which includes the always exciting guitarist Jeff Parker and by on sight drummer Gerald Cleaver, joined by the legendary Ari Brown on tenor sax. Now, Ari Brown is probably best known as a member of the AACM and also a founding member of The Awakening, who made a couple of stellar LPs on the Black Jazz label. Anyways, you might expect it's fantastic. Joshua Abrams' Cloud Script is the band, and the album is also called Cloud Script. Abrams and band have a new one coming out later this year with Evan Parker on the Aramite label, so don't miss that one. Definitely one of my more anticipated 2021 releases. Lastly, I want to mention the last few Wet Tuna releases, which I've been listening to on a regular basis. I'm a longtime admirer of Wet Tuna's Pat Gubler and Matt Valentine in all their various configurations, and this series of recent releases, Ode to a Fake Bookie Volumes 1 through 3, are absolute musts if you love deep, spacey, primal jams. Imagine a 1972 Dark Star performed at Black Ark with Lee Perry at the mixing board. I think Volume 2 is my favorite, but they're all stellar. What a band. wettuna.bandcamp.com that's all for now. You can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth and on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetothzone. If you're not already a patron, please do consider pledging. Tiers begin at only $5 a month and earn you lots of cool stuff, including early access to each new episode of The Toth Zone. You can also reach me at thetothzone at outlook.com. Thanks for sticking around. See you next episode. Till then... This is The Toth Zone.